Welcome to another Dishcast with yours truly. And this week, I am delighted to welcome an old friend and colleague, and now the uh, star of the Mick, <laughs> Mickey and Bob show. <laughs> Shut up, Mickey. Uh, uh, Mickey Kaus, uh, whose book, The End of Equality, is one of the best books on the emerging problems of politics in the 90s and 21st century, which I recommend you dig up. I also recommend you listen to Bob and Mickey's regular podcast. Uh, comes out, I think, on a, you do it on a Friday, but it comes out Saturday or something like that. It comes out late Friday night, but yeah. I don't want to compete with the Dishcast, which comes out Friday afternoon. Most but, people listen to us Saturday morning. Yeah. Um, and it's huge fun. And... Uh, the level of mutual admiration and contempt is it's very finely, <laughs> very finely attuned. <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on both sides of that. <laughs> yes, no, trust me. Uh, and uh, so I've invited Mickey on particularly this week because, obviously, we have the, the after effects of the COVID-19 bill, the American, is it America, America Rescue Plan? Uh, obvious, uh, at least 50% bullshit in that respect. And the the arrival of a new welfare benefit that does not require the recipient to offer any kind of reciprocal responsibility or to work, the principle that Mickey fought against quite successfully, actually, in the 1990s. And also, of course, the surge at the border and the choices, the awful choices, that Joe Biden now has to make with respect to immigration policy, even as thousands and thousands of children are now being <laughs> admitted and dispersed throughout the country to whoever can responsibly take them and sometimes not responsibly. Um, but I want to start, Mickey, with um, what I do always on this podcast, which is to sort of introduce you a little bit. Uh, most people don't know that Mickey Kaus, presumably Mickey Kaus is is partly about Mickey Mouse. Is that is that how it, how it emerged as your nickname, Mickey? Is your actual no. name? No, okay. No, no, it has nothing to do with that. It's uh, I'm I'm called Robert, and my uncle Robert didn't like to be another Bob in the family, and in fact, it violates a Jewish tradition, or maybe even be more than tradition, which is you don't name kids after living relatives. Huh. But we weren't we weren't that Jewish, so my my parents didn't <laughs> didn't obey that. But we then they then immediately switched to my middle name, which is Michael, and started calling me Mickey. And uh, they, I don't know. I called the I called my parents Peggy and Otto, and later on in my life they told me they didn't like that either. <laughs> <laughs> but it was too late to change. So uh, maybe it just became too late to change. They you didn't call them mom and dad. It was Peggy and Otto. Was... Did not call them mom and dad. Always Peggy and Otto. Wow, that's weird. Um, <laughs> and you grew up in Los Angeles, right? You're you're a native. Los I grew Angeles. up in Los Angeles uh, uh, on the west side of Los Angeles, and then when in second grade we moved to their dream house in Beverly Hills, and so I second grade on I went through the Beverly Hills school system. Uh, now, my first know of you from working at the uh, at the Washington Monthly for a bit. Is that where you started in journalism? Yes, I was. Uh, I was called Robert. I went back to my full name then, which was a huge mistake because Robert M. Cow sounds like a some sort of Germanic pedant you don't want to run into. 
and, and which you know, of course it, is actually quite accurate in your and, case. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, it's, not, it's not completely inaccurate in your case. Right. Okay. You well, can be a little pedantic want, at times. We're not striving for accuracy. We're striving for <laughs> box office. And it turned out Mickey Mouse has bigger box office, maybe because of the Mickey Mouse connection. I don't care as long as it attracts readers. So, um, And how did you we, come I to went, the New Republic? Uh, yeah, go on. Uh, uh, well, I, I, I came to Washington. I roomed with Nick Lemon, who was editor of the Washington Monthly. Mm. And so I had an inside track. When he quit, I applied for the job. And Charlie Peters, the editor of the Washington Monthly, was always willing to hire people because he's willing to fire them. Uh, so he gave me, a, and I was a very legalistic writer, and my early pieces make me cringe. Uh, uh, but because uh, I was coming from a, a career in a non-career in the law at the Federal Trade Commission. So uh, then, uh, after the traditional two-year stint, I uh, what happened? I. Uh, I guess I moved to LA and uh, Mike Kinsley had me writing a couple of pieces a month for him. Mike was also part of our dinner group. Uh, and so he- Your he, dinner um, group was the, he, he hung out in Washington with you, uh, with Nick? Yeah, yeah, we cooked, we cooked and he cooked one night a week and I cook one night a week and huh. nobody, wanted, nobody wanted to come to dinner when I cooked, but, <laughs> but they did, they did, or when, or when Kinsley cooked for that matter, but when Nick Lemon cooked, it was fine. It was, it was, uh, anyway, it was, so, uh, and there was a party, I was in LA and there was a party at, uh, at, um, I was writing a book which was tentatively titled After Mondale. It was supposed to be asked, supposed to be like what the Democrats could do after Mondale. There was an exciting title. Oh my God. That and would really a, there, bring him in. There was, a party box at, office. Yeah, there was a party at Margot Howard's house. Uh-huh. And Marty Parrots was there. And I gave Marty a ride home. And we talked about the oddly enough, the guaranteed income. And I said, you know, I'm against that. And Marty said, you know, I'm against that too. Uh, do you think you have an answer to the welfare problem? And I said, I think I do. Well, he said, why did you come to Washington and write it? So he, so he very generously like gave me an office at the New Republic, not a salary, but an office to write this big article on welfare, which eventually came out in 1986, uh, uh, right after Nick Lemon's big article in The Atlantic on the roots of the welfare problem. So it sort of was a nice end cap to that. Uh, and then uh, I sort of somehow wormed my way into an actual job at the New Republic. I was there, so they had to, they had the problem. They would have had to kick me out. Well, they didn't always kick people out. They kept Henry fairly there without a salary for many a year. Uh, but it does speak, I mean, Marty Peretz gets a lot of crap, but he really did offer amazing opportunities to a whole bunch of bright young people uh and created a really vibrant and open-minded magazine i think on most uh, subjects uh i agree we we didn't realize how good we had it no we didn't uh under under marty he was an academic so he tolerated dissent and controversy and argument in a way that is not does not happen at other magazines and he also brought something to the table which is a a, a vast knowledge of uh, the Middle East and various other topics. So he, you know, he he add he added added value in a way that other owners don't add. 
And he had his quirks, but basically he was the best owner I've ever had. I would say uh, the same thing, uh, just in terms uh, of of getting why people want to be writers, why people want to argue and debate. He sort of had that in his bones. You know, I met him because when I was at Harvard, he had an invitation to go to the Oxford Union, and he and the then president of the Oxford Union said to Marty, well, Marty asked, who do I talk to to know what I'm going to get into? And he recommended me as former president. So I briefed Marty on how he would uh, be able to debate in at Oxford. And I told him, I think this is what really won, won, won his favor. He was going to defend Israel. And I said, well, first of all, uh, you're fucked, uh, you know, Israel. <laughs> so just accept that you're going to lose this debate. So here's how you here's what you're going to do if you want to go down uh, <laughs> all shots firing. And I think it was that spirit that encouraged him to eventually get me to be an intern, too, which I think was when you were there originally yes. back in the 80s. Now, what's yeah. also interesting yeah. about that period is that young, ambitious, smart journalists like you were actually attempting at that point to rethink liberalism in a way that would make it, as you thought it, more effective, more efficient, that would accept human nature a little bit better, that would be uh, geared and understanding towards incentives and disincentives. That was the whole, what we used to call the neoliberal project in the 80s. Neoliberal has become right. a, a term ascribed to other things. Now, back then, it just simply meant rather nerdy, data, data-based, uh, make the state more efficient, make liberalism right. more appealing to people. It, uh, it, did, it did not mean let markets run rampant in every sector of life, which is what it's come to mean. It's become assimilated to the international definition of neoliberalism, which was free trade and free immigration and free monetary policy and whatever. But uh, it did not mean that. I come from the Charlie Peters School, which admit uh, big government, uh, but it, a different kind of big government. In other words, so on, on welfare, you'd have You'd have government aid, but it would be in a different form. It would be uh, more of a offering jobs and pushing people to work as opposed to offering cash. Uh, and in other areas, you know, it was different in other ways. But it was not in Charlie's uh, conception. It was in no way uh, market-oriented or anti-government. No, although it did understand that markets do have some qualities oh, yeah. that are important to uh, well, he, to understand, and and that, yeah, I mean, and that they need that. Understanding need to be integrated into our understanding of politics. Yes, that and Charlie, in that you know, Charlie was uh, a capitalist, and he was where he was where you went after college to become a capitalist as opposed to a socialist. <laughs> that was so. Uh, when you look now, when we look at ourselves now, what thirty-five years later? Oh uh, God, it is that long. Um, uh, is it that long? Yes. Um, we seem to be at almost inverted moment in which all those ideas to reform liberalism are being sort of jettisoned, uh, all, 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 all uh, uh, attempts to make the state more efficient uh, seem to be much less popular than they used to be, uh, that the, the shift has gone towards broad uh, support for the poor or, or, the, or the, the working poor, especially. Um, why... Why do you think that's happened? Why have you lost the argument? Uh, I don't think we've lost the argument yet. Uh, the, uh, the 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 remember that my first meeting with Marty, we were talking about the guaranteed income, which is coming back in a big way. And you know, in if you if you look at the history of American anti-poverty policy, the guaranteed income was 
was the consensus fashionable solution in the late 60s, around 1968, uh, the Great Society was perceived to, Johnson's Great Society was perceived to have failed to stop poverty. And the consensus was just give people cash. And uh, there was a commission by the most over-credentialed man in America, Ben Heinemann Sr. Who? And the Who? Heinemann Commission, Ben, uh, and he, they, they, they said, give everybody cash. Uh, two years earlier, they said, give him a job. In this, they said, we can't give him a job. We just have to give him cash. Uh, and it almost became law. Nixon proposed a guaranteed income plan, and it barely failed. It only failed because a guy like named Ronald Reagan said it was a mega dole, uh, and it, and it, it invokes the old work ethic, anti dole ethic, and it 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 was barely defeated. Uh, so. Uh, this is nothing new that it would crop up again. Now, uh, Clinton, I thought to his credit, signed a bill that basically emphasized uh, we should push people into work. The, the best solution for poverty was a job that paid enough to live on. And with a with if you added food stamps and the earned income tax credit, a basic minimum job barely paid enough to live on in the Clinton era. So he achieved his goal. Uh, the, uh, and that is still the law, right? Until until law. until this particular until the American Rescue Plan, which has introduced this no strings child benefit, really. Um, right. That right. was the, the that's, all... but it's still the law. And what right. what's the evidence that it succeeded in in breaking the culture of poverty? Well, um, there there's there's some good news and some bad news about it. The good news is. Uh, half the welfare, you know, the basic Hillary Clinton was worried about this law and went to talk to Doug Besheroff, a scholar. Uh, should I really worry about my husband signing this law? And he said, no, the main thing that's going to happen is it's going to send a signal to the welfare population to get off the rolls. And that's exactly what happened. It didn't, it didn't matter what the fine print of the work requirements was. Welfare rolls are now half what they were before. So people, uh, single moms who uh, looked at the welfare program and they saw that there was a time limit on it now. And they said, well, gee, I better get a job. And they went to work in astounding numbers. Uh, the, 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 the poor single moms went from like, I'm, I'm approximating, but like 40% labor force participation to 60%. Okay, that it's very unusual to have a success that large in, in anti-poverty policy, uh, and they left the rolls. Now, the people that were on the rolls, maybe nothing much happened to them. Uh, you know, they were supposed to be forced to work or not forced to work, encouraged to do something like training or go to some resume building class or some class that prepared them. And a lot of that was bullshit, and it kept the social work bureaucracy in place, which is what a lot of people object to. But it didn't. That didn't really matter much because half the people had left the rolls. So that was the huge anti-poverty success. And they also left the rolls in a very, very hot labor market of the late uh, 1990s. Uh, so they did very well. Uh, the the uh, and 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 they seem to have stuck with it through the ups and downs of uh, of the post 2000 era, uh, sometimes brutal ups and downs. So by 2019. 
the American, the poverty rate for children was the lowest it's ever been. Right before the pandemic hit, it, it was it, especially for black children, but for all children of all races, the low record lows. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is, A, we were hoping that it would do something for uh, single parent families. So we were hoping that a mom who had, who had to go to work instead of welfare and slog it out in what is often a very sh a shitty job uh, would say, you know, I want the father of my child to help. I, so I'm going to hold out for a man to marry who's going to help me out with this. So I don't have to, you know, so two incomes is better than one. Uh, that happened a little bit. If you looked at the uh, out of wedlock birth ratio for African-Americans, it stopped right after welfare. It stopped growing and plateaued. But then it sort of inched up again. And the the the, the figure for whites just kept zooming up, uh, starting from much lower levels. Uh, so it didn't have the impact on marriage we hoped for. And there also, I had hoped that states would start a jobs program like the WPA so that you morally you could say, uh, okay, here's your job. If you don't take it, you're on your own, but we have a job for you. Uh, and Wisconsin had done that and New York City had done that, but nobody else did it. So the states completely fell down on the job and, and it, you know, all this crap you hear about laboratories of democracy was completely disproven, and they did not deliver the jobs program. And, and in my my personal, uh, you know, I was very happy with welfare reform, but I should have pushed for a for a WPA jobs program. Right. That is the missing link now, <clears throat> uh, and it's what I hope to emphasize in the future. So, the left, the kids, the kids these days growing up in college looked and they they said, "Well, there's this bureaucracy. We don't like that." Uh, there's no jobs for these people, uh, so how can you force them? How can you require them to work? And they they sort of gravitated back to a uh, guaranteed income. Uh, and you know, I, in in general, I don't think neoliberals paid much attention to what was going on on college campuses. And there were you know there were no neoliberal professors. All the professors were, were the old left professors who went back to the 1968 consensus. So. That's my potted history of what happened. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. The, the, one of the one of the encouraging things that happened in America the last twenty years has been that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that actually black women have done relatively well in the last twenty years. That that the earnings have gone up. That uh, that the relative poverty has gone down. Am I right about that? I think you're right about that. If you if you if you define the population in deciles. You know, every ten percent, ten percent, ten percent. The 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 welfare population was sort of in the bottom two deciles, and the second to the last decile has done really well. Those are the women that went to work, left welfare, went to work in the hot economy, stuck with it, and that's turned out to be very good for them. At the very bottom, you have the people that uh, the left writes about, which is the so-called people who are in deep poverty. Uh, they, the left couldn't prove that poverty rose after welfare reform, so they invented this new concept of deep poverty <laughs> so they could claim that deep poverty, of, which is less than 50% of the poverty line, rose. And there, there are two answers to that. One is uh, the whole point of welfare reform was if you didn't work, you were on your own. So you would expect deep the people not even living on welfare, living on less than welfare, to rise. 
The second thing is if you look at the statistics, it really didn't rise. It sort of stayed the same. So what happened is the, the very last 10% aren't any richer, but the 10% above that, who are still quite poor, did much better. So overall, they did better. Wouldn't the uh, the infrastructure bill be a good vehicle for something like a new WPA? I mean, there is a lot of uh, not terribly skilled labor involved in retrofitting houses, in in laying cables, in in the whole business of updating our infrastructure to be more green friendly. Is would that be a, a possibility of of? You would think. You would think if the if if uh, if if the, if the Democrats didn't reduce it to to BS jobs like you know going door to door to check on energy efficiency in your home, which <laughs> which seems like sort of crap. Uh, but the problem is the unions. Uh, the more useful the jobs are, the more the job is likely to be done by a unionized worker, who and the unions do not like cheap welfare labor, which is very cheap to the state because they're instead of paying them welfare benefits, which they pay anyway, they pay the wages for a job, uh, that, uh, they don't like that them competing for their jobs. So the AFSCME, the big government union, hates workfare. And they also, you know, unions have always hated public jobs. They hated the WPA. Uh, Ro Franklin Roosevelt had to break a strike by the AFL-CIO against the WPA. Hmm. Uh, so organized labor is always the big secret obstacle to WPA programs. And you know it should be possible to buy them off with enough jobs. If you give all their members jobs uh, and have some work left over to do, it should be possible to reach some deal with them. But that's what has to be done. And you know, union bosses always say, well, You've taken care of my current members, but I'd sort of like to grow my union too. So I see all these potential infrastructure jobs that my union could get. Why are you giving them to all comers to these poor people? Uh, so it takes it takes a very tough person like FDR to uh, to 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 pull that off. And and Biden doesn't seem to be that kind of person. Biden does not not seem, although maybe Ron Klain is, you know, our prime minister. So um, yes. Uh, and keep in mind, um, the key Clinton person negotiating this welfare reform in 96 was Bruce Reed, yeah. who's now back in the White House working for Biden. Yes. What does he think to see his the left undo his work by to finish the story in the new rescue bill that provides, you know, 300, 250 or $300 a month, a, a month for each kid? Uh, which is almost the same as welfare benefits used to be for single moms, and is without any work requirements at all. So that's completely obsoleted the so-called work-tested uh, welfare program, and it's sort of a guaranteed income for mothers with kids. Uh, and uh, you know, I would think Bruce would want a to. Uh, I'm not sure what he feels about that, and b I think he would also be in favor of. Uh, uh, you know, a WPA-like work program. He was crucial in saving the Wisconsin program, which yeah. was a WPA-like work program. Yeah. Um, and uh, Bruce, I mean, there's a lot of those people still in that Biden White House, right? I mean, they, they haven't all been sidelined completely. But one, one gets the sense 
that the atmosphere has changed dramatically and that the winds are definitely in a more collectivist and statist direction. Um, do you think part of the reason for that is that in the 90s, you could tell a story about the success of the neoliberal economy. You could tell a story about higher growth rates. You could tell a story about innovation. It looked pretty great in the late 90s in terms of the economy. But over the last 20 years, we've seen grotesque increases in inequality, social and economic inequality, and a general sense that your regular person is being shafted. And that's not that's not entirely a, a, a mis mistaken belief that the people have been treading water. A lot of people have been treading water for 20, 30 years, while a, a small group have gotten incredibly wealthy. Uh, isn't that part of what this is? It feels as if we need to rebalance the society somewhat. Things have gotten completely out of whack. Well, that that is at the root of uh, virtually everything. Mm -hmm. It's at the it's at the it's at certainly at, it's at the root of a lot of the uh, support for this child allowance because a lot of it some of it comes from the right people like Ross Douthat, who who look and say uh, incomes have stagnated in the middle as you say, uh, and families want to have more children than they have there. So we, we have to provide a child allowance to the middle class to enable them to uh, replicate the old incomes they used to have and have the amount of children they used to have. And I have no problem with that. My problem is giving it to people who don't work, not to the middle class, which does work. But uh, but that so it's a, at the root of support for this, the, a lot of these things is the rec recognition that uh, the forces of the middle class have been stagnant under our existing arrangement, and somehow, uh, rather than give jobs that pay more and reduce the inequalities the market generates, the state has to come in and and just shower cash on people and subsidize people, and that's sort of the tr true with immigration too. Uh, you get the the left solution to immigration has always been letting the immigrants, and if they bid down wages. Well, the state will make it up by sending payments directly to people. It's the old, uh, you know, compensate the losers attitude, uh, and there's a lot more compensating that has to be done in a in a in a economy where the middle class incomes are stagnant. But keep in mind, you know, I, the only book I've ever written came out in '92, and it says right on the cover, incomes are increasing, and there's nothing. Income inequality is increasing, and there's nothing we can do about it. So that was evident in '92. Uh, it was not. Uh, it, it did not only happen after 2000. So uh, it, it's been happening all along. And in fact, if you look at the, some figures, in the recent years, it's actually been flat. It, the the real horror years for in, inequality for decimating the middle class were the late late 20th century. That's when the China shock happened. That's when. All of our jobs were outsourced to China, and it's 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 the fault of uh, one of my faults is I didn't see it happening when it was happening. No, neither did, was, neither did I. We were all so I, wrapped up in our free trade dogmas. Right. I remember particularly when NAFTA came along at the New Republic. Uh, our mutual friend Bob Wright wrote that uh, lead editorial we began on the cover <laughs> uh, about the vital importance of NAFTA to everybody. Uh, I don't know, has Bob revisited his uh, free trade absolutism? 
I didn't realize that. I will throw that in his face in our next podcast <laughs> and want... see what he says. Uh, you can look it up. Uh, I mean, because I know, I remember because I ran it. I mean, I was there yeah. and I remember, yeah. I remember well, doing the cover, starting it on the cover. And it seemed to me as a kind of uh, post-Thatcherite at that point, uh, self-evident. But, but I hadn't appreciated at all uh, quite how... The impact of it, even though in the aggregate we could, you could still make an argument for it in terms of overall wealth, but the actual social yeah. impact in particular areas was devastating in ways that I think right. we should have been much and, more prescient about. Well, and right, I and understand there, the backlash to that. Right, and there was the attitude of of, and this really was a neoliberal attitude in the in both senses of the word. Uh, the attitude was, well, if factory workers lost their job, they could get more productive jobs elsewhere in the economy and move. And the big thing was help people, not places. So you help the people move to new areas. And it turned out that people didn't want to move. They were their 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 mother, their widowed mother was was living in town and there would would be homicidally lonely if they left. They they weren't about to move. Uh and a lot of them just saw their lives destroyed when the jobs left their town. And we and the 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 the, the free movement that the you know the, the 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 Clintonites and the neoliberals saw just didn't happen. Yeah, uh, we... And the second factor, second factor, of course, was immigration, which we'll get to. Uh, you move to a new town, and immigrants are there lowering the wages in that town too. So why move? Hmm. Uh, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. No, I think most people are more small C conservative than many intellectuals think. I mean, the the most of us who are sort of in the cognitive elite, so to speak. I'm not saying that in anything but a neutral term have most of us have actually traveled quite a long way we don't live where we grew up but that's unusual most people like to live where they're familiar um even though america is a particularly restless country it's still people like place they're attached to it they're attached to their local history things they are familiar with um and this sort of abstract idea that these just the economic units that can move around and maximize their utility uh turned out to be uh, a misreading of human nature um, but yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about immigration because <clears throat> I've, you know, I've been struggling with this subject and I've been largely persuaded, I think, by you and others that, that completely mass uh, immigration is extremely destabilizing for a country on a variety of, ish, of, of, of ways. Uh, having looked at you, what's happened in Europe over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, it's incredibly troubling to see the rise of very right-wing movements in response to an unprecedented shift in the demographics of Europe. Uh, and similarly here, of course, we finally got this eruption under Trump uh, that was clearly fueled in part by fear of and objections to immigration at the scale and pace at which it is now happening. Um, uh, and this issue... <clears throat> For you, it seemed to me to come from a couple of places. One of those places was the classic neoliberal, the classic actually labor union defense of protections against immigration, which is going to hurt domestic workers' uh, labor. The other argument that I haven't heard much from you is that, is that change is great, but too much change too quickly for people will prompt unnecessarily fast and brutal reactions that we should be able to... Yeah. Uh, 
acknowledge in advance the way we didn't see in, in with respect to trade, we didn't see either with respect to immigration, but in retrospect, is completely understandable. Uh, which of those things is, motivates you on this this question? Where does it come I've, deep down come to you? Where are you? Where where is your gut feeling? What led you to this anti this anti mass immigration position? My gut is with the economic argument. Uh, mm -hmm. The 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 uh, you know the goal. The, the, the even though I ignored immigration in my book, the goal of the goal is that everybody who goes to work can participate as an equal in society has enough money to to do that. And uh, uh, it seemed in the late 90s, it seemed like, you know, the bottom was rising, but the top was just rising much faster. OK, then I guess this is a, this is I'm, I'm conceding what you already said. Then it's, it became clear that the bottom was stagnant. And uh, if you read the re writings of Robert Reich, which was the first to explain why things were going more unequal to me. Uh, I remember Bob Wright coming into my office and says, well, this guy's done the analytical work. Uh, the analytical work was that jobs that could be moved overseas would be moved overseas. Uh, the jobs, uh, we, we, we had, uh, America had, had, was doing well in, in the, what, he, what Reich clumsily calls symbolic analysis, symbolic analysts. Sort of, sort of the credentialed thinkers and consultants, et cetera, et cetera. Those people were doing fine. Their jobs could, in theory, be moved overseas, but America was sort of tops in that category, and that left a, a finite number of unskilled jobs that had to be performed here. Like, you know, you you had if you wanted to move your, your goods, you have to do it here. You can't outsource that to India. People have to show up at your house and move your goods, uh, and in those you know, there was a blazing arrow that Reich never followed, which said, okay, uh, that means we have to control immigration because those jobs are precious. We have to save them for our unskilled people. Uh, and Reich was always on the verge of saying that, but Demo democratic orthodoxy prevented him. Uh, uh, but uh, when you say democratic obvious. orthodoxy, that hasn't always been the case. That hasn't always been democratic orthodoxy, right? I mean, the, the, as I understand it, FDR, for example, was presiding over almost no immigration at that point. Right. Uh, it, it, from 1924 onwards, the, the, the Democratic Party was a party of strong borders. Am I, am I wrong about that? Right. No, from 1920 to the 20s to 1965, the Democratic Party uh, benefited from uh, a very, very strict border policy. Right. Uh, but in 1965, it did become a part of the civil rights agenda to somehow uh, to 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 end the uh, imbalance, the racial imbalance in, in people who were allowed to come here and also uh, began to see foreigners as sort of people with civil rights, too. And it, 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 it and then the, and then gradually it became a crucial part of the, the Democratic Party's uh, future strategy for getting voters, which is that we'd let in all these immigrants and they'd vote Democratic. And then when Ron Brownstein came along and John Judas, who's since recanted, it became the Democratic Party's reason that they didn't have to really make much effort because the demographics of immigration were going to carry them to victory in the future anyway. So they didn't really have to appeal to whites or the middle class or the working class. They could jettison the white working class didn't matter because the the coalition of the ascendant, as Ron Brownstein said, were going to carry them to victory. So it became not only 
ideologically but practically dogma in the Democratic Party that they had to maximize immigration. It's also still uh, a dogma that they seem to have that obviously every Lat Latinx uh, citizen is going to want more mass immigration of other Latinxes, right? Uh, right. And uh, is that how you pronounce it? Well, or is I, it I just think it's so ridiculous <laughs> that I might as well might as well make fun of the pronunciation as well. But um, uh, that seems to me to be incredibly condescending towards an ethnic group that might have a whole variety of different viewpoints. And of course, as we discovered in the last election, immigration does not. Is not a, a monolithic. Uh, immigrant groups do not have a monolithic view about mass immigration. There are many. Obviously, the people who've just immigrated are the most directly affected by newcomers who will who will barking down their wages. And, and so you you can understand. I mean, this is what I always sort of amazed by people saying, "How could an immigrant be against mass immigration?" I was like. No, 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 you don't understand. It's, it's precisely those people who are the most up against it. Of course they're going to. And this is, goes back throughout American history. Um, uh, and so it may not, as we know, John Judas has, because John Judas is, a, if, if, if many, many things, is very intellectually honest. I haven't seen, and I think Reiter Shearer has also kind of renounced it, said I got it wrong. But it seems to be like some zombie doctrine that continues even though it has been kind of disproved. Um, uh, I, go on, sorry. You know, well, Tom Etzel wrote a recent column about this, which I which unfortunately I haven't read yet, but uh, I assume <laughs> there are a lot of Democrats having grave doubts about the coalition of the Ascendant now. Yes, but very privately, they, they, nobody's really willing to go on the record. And if you're like David Shaw and point things, this, these kind of things out, you are frozen out and, and persecuted and cancelled as far as you can cancel someone, right? And then that's the the, the, the the orthodoxy seem to be getting more and more ruthlessly imposed. Right. And it may it may it may sort of have to do with wokeism at some point too, because I always thought Ron Brownstein could not recant because so many corporations had given him so much money to write about the next America and have a special section of the Atlantic and the next America. That he couldn't, he couldn't quite ever without putting mil hundreds of people out of work. He couldn't say, <laughs> "Well, you know, the next America really isn't going to happen, uh, and it's not going to be like the next America." And and corporations cannot say, you know, that uh, uh, that they cannot say maybe we shouldn't have more immigration or maybe uh, this isn't monumentally appealing to everybody. So they, they 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 may have there may be a constraint there from the. It does the seem that side. yes that there's a the both corporate America, and and the entire intellectual elite of America regards restriction of immigration as a function of white supremacy. Right? They they've now regarded that the and and in reverse, it's almost as if they want more mass immigration, more mass non-white immigration, in order to break down what they understand to be white supremacy. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's a logic I'm hearing uh, inferentially from what they're saying, and it also happens to to uh, coincide with their hardcore economic interest in lower labor costs. So uh, uh, it's a it's a common it's a what the not, not the Democrats, right? Uh, sorry, the Democrats don't have I, interested in low, lower wages. No, I, I was talking about corporate interests. Okay, corporate, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, Microsoft and and Facebook and. Uh, you Google. know all sorts of uh, the the financial backing for 
uh, looser borders. Uh, and, and a lot of the K Street backing is from the Chamber of Commerce, which has a direct interest. And, in you know, we can argue whether the econ economics shows that immigration lowers wages, but the businessmen sure think it does because they're lobbying awfully hard for it. Uh, there was so, this um, grand alliance between sort of uh, uh, the, as the ascended America Democrats and hard-nosed multinational business among Republicans, right. in which one right. got that, lower wage costs, the other got lots of potential future voters. And it's right. who, who, why not? Even though I think in, 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 the, in the case of the Democrats, obviously, it's not quite as simple as that. It can actually backfire in, in some respects. Um, uh, at the same time, we've had this massive shift. We're now, in terms of foreign-born, and here I am, I'm one of them, we're, we're at a pretty, I mean, something like 14% of the population is now foreign-born, which is roughly where it was in the early teens a century right. ago. That's, right. It's, it, it, if you look at, if you look at the, what happened in the early teens, as soon as the foreign-born population hits 14%, people start freaking out, perhaps for the cultural concerns that you talked about, and they do something about it. And um, they used to talk frankly about assimilation. I mean, that was like, one of the standard things is that we have to assimilate these people and we have to have time to assimilate them. And, and people thought that was, you know, a cover for racism. But in fact, uh, even Charlie Peters in his book uh, says, you know, the, 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 the restrictions of the 20s bought us time to assimilate the huge flow of Italians and Europeans and people that had come in the late 19th century. Uh, and it enabled it enabled all those wonderful World War II, you know, pictures where there's one Italian and one Pole and one Jew and one, you know, one black and the other, maybe not a black because that, that progress was slower. But uh, that was enabled by the by the t restrictions of the 20s. And then uh, things started to get out of control again. And I think we do need a, some sort of pause to assimilate all the people who are here. Now, I guess one reason that I am not as as attuned to cultural angst as elsewhere is I live in Los Angeles where there's a huge Latino population, been here for a long time, and people are pretty comfortable with it. Uh, you cannot live in Los Angeles without, uh, without accepting Latinos as, as fellow citizens and, and uh, good, Amer you know, Latinos make very good Americans. I mean, they, they, we could, we, we're very fortunate to have Mexico and, even Central America is our neighbor. It could be Algeria. I mean, we could have. It could be Europe, tougher, in other words. Yeah, we could have a much tougher assimilation problem, uh, and we don't have it. Uh, but elsewhere in the country, uh, this is a new phenomenon, and it's also not just limited to Latinos. So, right, and 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 one definitely sees the potential for Latino assimilation or integration into the country over the long term. I mean. Certain values there are very compatible with full integration, sure. assimilation. Um, you know, it's, it's the same religion, basically. Yes. Making very high rates of intermarriage. Yes. In two or three generations, the race, the, 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 the ethnicity is totally muddled. Yes. Uh, uh, and, you know, so it's the Warren Beatty's Norman Podhoret solution, which is that everybody has sex with everybody. Eventually, the problem disappears. Is, is Warren Beatty making that position? 
making t- making that argument from a sociological position or for a pers- for personal <laughs> interest. <laughs> well, it's a happy confluence of interest. <laughs> um, uh, but there is a question, isn't there? If you there's a question also of the changing economy, which is that unskilled work uh, is not as available or as instantly rewarding as it might have been in the 30s or 40s or 50s, that automation and technology have rendered the viability of non-skilled people, as we're finding, uh, much, much, uh, much more challenging in this, in this particular period. And so there are two issues here, right? There's, there's the issue of bringing in large numbers of people for whom there aren't really that many jobs and probably won't be in, in the future. And the other is if you bring in a huge number, they don't have to integrate as much. They don't have to assimilate. They can, they can actually form their own communities. This is something that Raihan Salam is worried about in, in, his, in his work on immigration. And therefore, you kind of balkanize the country as opposed to creating a healthy multicultural, multiracial society, which is capable of assimilating, integrating, and moving forward. I think that, that, that's exactly right on, on both counts. Uh, and the problem of uh, the decline in, in the in the need for unskilled labor is a, obviously a bigger problem than immigration. In other words, uh, even if there were no immigration, we would have the we would have the problem of if automation re- removes the need for any unskilled work. What what do the unskilled workers do? Uh, and uh, I, I'm a pessimist in that. There there are people who say, well, that's never happened before, and I say, well, we've never had machines that do do as much that humans can do as we have now. Uh, and and the, the relevant dystopia is the novel Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut. I mean, there, there are dozens of novels that have written about, written about it, but in his dystopia, you know, the unskilled are employed by a ragged WPA-like program called the Reeks and the Rex, and they basically do nothing but employ people and drink a lot of beer and um uh and that's what happens to unskilled workers uh but it's certainly insane to import millions of of immigrants who are also unskilled workers for jobs that are going to be obsolete in 10 years yeah uh that's that's sort of totally crazy and it's different than what we've previously had we previously had a need for these people uh and it made assimilation much easier and made them much less uh of a a problem for wages at the bottom Right. It's also true, however, that, that, that many attitudes towards immigration are now effectively that, 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 that white people are the problem with America. Whiteness is the huge problem. And therefore, breaking down whiteness is a crucial goal, um, <clears throat> which means, of course, uh, it's the more non-white immigration you can have, the better. It dilutes the evil of white people in America. It disrupts and dismantles these cultural patterns, which is a good thing. That's interesting. I haven't I haven't seen it put that explicitly. Well, they won't put it that explicitly. My... I'm putting it that explicitly. <laughs> Maybe I'm I unfairly, mean, I'm doing another straw man here, but I, I can feel that underneath it. No, I think you're right. And uh, you know, I'm, I, I find that the, the whole white supremacy fetish so ludicrous and uh, in sort of one-dimensional and reductionist that uh, I don't quite take it seriously. I mean, I, I know most of what I know about it from reading your column on <laughs> uh, on critical studies or whatever. Critical it's race theory, yeah. Critical <laughs> race theory, and uh, uh, and it seems it seems it seems so uh, 
so weak that it, it but it is it, it 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 is i think the submerged like the sex drive of 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 a lot of this is uh is the idea of 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 anti whiteness i think i think you're probably right about that uh but also uh, anti nation state which is the sense that 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 a nation state is is a defensible moral political construct um that as as one of my former dish turns put it Zach Beecham that borders are racist inevitably there's they, they have to be racist if one if a border separates people who a country which is majority one race and from another people that's a majority another race to have such a border at all is to express a racial preference right. So you're responsible for Zach Beecham, huh? Okay. <laughs> well, I I well, played a small part sure. in, uh, in 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 uh, I I played many I've, I've encouraged many people across the uh, over the years, and you know you never know how they nope. turn out. But Zach Zach's, <laughs> a, Zach's a lovely guy. I don't I don't mean it, but he's but he's and he's interesting because he is kind of a good he's kind of guileless sometimes. So he says things out loud that the rest of them don't. Um, well, but it's... borders are racist is is I think a core underlying philosophy here. Well, it's 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 interesting to track uh, Matt Iglesias's progress on this because he always, I think, agreed with that. He was always uh, he was for open borders, you know, with the explicit argument of we shouldn't only consider what's good for Americans, what's good for these people who are coming in, and right. obviously it's good for them to come to America. So if you add up their interests and our interests, we should let them in because their interests outweighs ours. And uh, he was very explicit and honest about that. And now he's written a book saying we need a, b a billion Americans so as a nation state we can compete with China. Okay, <laughs> so he is he is gravitated toward accepting the nation state and accepting the need to to sort of have a nationalistic policy. He's still for open borders, but uh, for nationalistic reasons. That I so I hope that indicates that the the borders are racist view is declining even on the left. I have no faith that that's true. I don't, I, I fear that is not true, but for most regular human Americans, I would say, the notion that America is a separate country, that it has borders, that people outside of it have different rights than people inside of it, that it's not incumbent upon us morally to accept anyone to come into the country or inherently racist to say no, or inherently right. cruel to say no. Uh, that should... That should be easy. The, the, the more difficult argument is uh, the argument they're having in Europe, which is, uh, and we want them to assimilate to our culture as opposed to us assimilating to their culture. Well, in America, uh, it's so much easier than in Europe because the European cultures are much more geared around history, around an, obviously an ethnic identity that's gone back hundreds, thousands of years. And the sudden influx of huge numbers of immigrants, like we take the United Kingdom, my, where I come from, this had never happened before. It just weren't, there weren't this many immigrants. And so the challenge to integrate them within the society of Englishness was extreme. Um, I mean, this one statistic I've mentioned before is that in 2015, more people actually immigrated gross into the UK as, as had immigrated from 1066 to 1950. That is a, that's a very big shift uh, in population, and, in which London is now 40%. The population of London wasn't born in England. That is, it's, it's, it's never happened. Whereas New York, 
That's always been the case. It's always been the case. America is a, so much better able to integrate and assimilate people than the European countries. Uh, but, but the same dynamics then apply. Um, we could easily, I think, with, uh, assimilate and integrate large numbers of immigrants as long as it wasn't too much, too fast, uh, in ways that destabilize the society rather than, rather than help it. And, and that gets to that gets to the the, uh, the 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 legislation that Biden just introduced to Congress, which is to amnesty the, the either eleven or twenty million immigrants who are here. Uh, we could handle that. Uh, America's a big place. That that wouldn't destroy our country if we if we said, okay, you people are Americans too. But uh, but. You know, if we had open borders and multiplied that by ten or twenty, uh, it might be a problem. So the the goal of the people on uh, on my side, even Ann Coulter in her column this week, accepts that, that, that there might be an amnesty under certain conditions that guarantee that that it doesn't. It's not the precursor to a hundred, two hundred million people coming. Absolutely, I I I am absolutely in favor. I mean, I've experienced myself uh, in a much smaller way. The dramatic insecurity and difficulty it is to live in a country which you don't have an absolute right to live in. It's, it's unbelievably uh, debilitating and psychologically terrifying for people. And I think there's a huge support, and there is, the polling will tell you, of managing to integrate and keep and make secure the immigrants who've already come here, however they did so. But if you do that while you're also saying, and also, by the way, anybody who wants to come in, please come in. We got, we're going to facilitate this as fast as possible. We're, gonna, we're not going to build the wall anymore. We're going to actually, that is the policy. I mean, I've never heard Biden, I've never heard him say, we need to control immigration. Uh, certainly in, in the last two or three years, that, that we have an interest in not letting too many people into the United States. Right. He's told, he's, he's, He's told people, don't come now. Yeah, but because we're going to get it later, because right. we're going to pull right. the whole thing down later. You can come walk in any time, day or night. His, his idea seems to be with enough immigration judges and enough tents, we can basically take on all comers and, and, and process them into the country very quickly. Uh, but we're not going to tell them no. We're going to tell, you know, right now, if you apply for asylum, 70% of the people get in. They get in for a court date later, and at the later court date, if they lose their cases. But it doesn't matter because they're in and they never leave. And so because when they Biden, lose their cases, if they go to a court and you lose the case, you just walk out and say, bye. Um, there's, right. there's no one in that court case is going to, there's no cop in that court case or immigration. Which is, okay, you failed. You're, we're going to take you now and you're on a, we've got you a nice hotel for a bit and then we're going to put you on a plane. No, that right. doesn't happen at all. People have a completely... They're completely able to walk out of there and never be seen again. I think that's right. The, 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 the number of people who are actually leave is, is very low, like 4%. Uh, it, but the number who lose their cases is very high. It's like uh, 80%. And, uh, and a lot it's of really people don't, the, even the, show, the asylum... don't even show up for don't even show up for the cases. Yeah, a lot of them do. What? But, but, but I, let me just nail down that statistic. 80%, you say, of the... Asylum what? petitions I've, fail. I just, I just pulled that out of your ass, out of my ass. But, uh, but something like but no, that's it's, your. It's in the ballpark. Okay. I mean, you you come to the country. There are two determinations. They make an initial determination of credible fear. Right. Uh, and 
if you if you have a credible fear, and it used to be that seventy percent of the people passed that test, then they gave you a court date, and in the later court date, it determined actually do you actually qualify for asylum, and the, it was reversed. Seventy percent of people failed that. Only oh, ve very few people were determined. So there was a mismatch. Okay, Trump. If you read Rich Lowry's article that just came out today had lowered the initial 70% figure, so it matched the later figure of 30%. So only 30% of the people actually got in, okay? And Biden is in the process of raising it back up to 70. The problem is, if they let you in initially, as we just discussed, even if you fail that later uh, determination, the final full trial determination, you stay in the country. Mm -hmm. So the initial one is the one that counts. Once you're in, you're in. Right. Now, that seems to be be absolutely clear. I mean, it's not fun to be in and be illegal. I mean, not have any documents. Uh, that's the other question. If if Biden were to 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 pursue what he wants, which seems to be to facilitate even greater numbers of immigrants into the country, uh, maybe he could also impose or apply E-Verify as a mandatory legal requirement for every employer in the country to be forced to verify the people they employ are legally in the country legitimately, right? And that, that for some reason, I mean, that's, if you actually, this is again what I can't believe about Republicans or people who actually favor, why isn't that just a, the biggest talking point out there? Because we, 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 none of us are supposed to believe in illegal immigration. Um, the only way it works is if employers break the law by hiring people at dirt wages illegally. If they were really forced by federal law, I don't know whether you could do it federally but, or, or, or state by state, to have to prove that the people they're employing are legal by this E-Verify mandate, uh, then I think a lot of people's concerns would be satisfied and you might actually get people uh, making a, a decision that they're not going to get employment in the U.S., so they, maybe they should stay where they are. Right. I th I th I, I'm very much in favor of that. I think it's the biggest... It's the biggest thing you could you could uh, hold out to, to say. Okay, we'll go with your amnesty, but you have to do this, and 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 there you know you have to do e-verify. I'm for building the wall, and you need some system to stop people from overstaying visas. That's that said, the problems with e-verify are first, it doesn't do anything about the underground economy. So mm -hmm. you know half of half of employers already use it. Okay. Half of formal sort of above ground employers use it. Uh, even if the other half used it too, you you have a vast army of of, of employers who 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 don't who don't aren't in the formal economy and just pay people under the table. And or you might even encourage that. That might, that might actually grow if you right. if you put right. e verify in place. Right. And and the second thing is, you know, they every now and then they raid meatpacking plants in the Midwest. And they realize that half the workers are uh, illegal immigrants, and they get deported. And those places use E-Verify. So how good is E-Verify if half the workforce can figure out how to get around it? Mm. That's 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 the and and the third thing is businessmen, the people that haven't signed up for it already, hate it because uh, it's another bit of paperwork, and there's certain ways it's not perfect and. You know, you could design a better system, but we the one we have now is only like 80 percent good. Uh, so the Chamber of Commerce really doesn't like it.
it, we should still do it, but but it, it's you have to ram it down their throat. What's a package, a, 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 a compromise that you could support yourself? I mean, I, I would think something like uh, amnesty for everybody here, plus uh, better, much better border security slash wall, right? Plus right. going forward policies that are much more effective at deterring mass immigration. Right. Uh, now, Trump had that, did have something like that on the table, right? He did have at one point. He never had E-Verify. No, he didn't have E-Verify. No, but he did have, okay, we'll let you build the wall in return for amnestying uh, all the uh, all the current uh, DACA people and other uh, undocumented immigrants, uh, right? Right. I, I Right. I didn't think a wall for, you know, in terms of a deal, I didn't think wall for the DACA amnesty was good enough. I mean, it may, with Biden under, as president, maybe it'll seem in retrospect, not such a bad deal. But um, well, that's uh, my point. They, I mean, and not only that, were, but they walked away because the law did not agree to to lower legal immigration levels in the future, right. which is to the, attach that to it at the last minute, which is what Stephen Miller did, struck me as 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 really. Well, I think. Pursuing the perfect think, over the good and losing everything. I think that was always the intent, was to always get, you know, they, we, we now have this crazy system where you, if you have fam, the only people that get in who aren't like formally requested by business, who aren't in the employment categories, are people who already have family members here. So, uh, and that can be not just immediate family, it can be your brother or your uncle and, and and so it puts an incredible premium on distant family, and it means that a schlub in Nigeria or somewhere who just wants to be an American has no hope. Right. There's you know the, the diversity lottery, which is only fifty thousand people, was the only hope. Uh, so, but if your uncle is there, hey, you have a lot of hope. Right. So that's crazy. And the the whole idea was to uh, well, they wanted to lower I illegal immigration, but it's crazy to have uncles and brothers be privileged. Uh, you should have your wife and your kids fine, but that should be it. And and it was a, it was a reasonable thing to to at least want some change in that that policy. I think in addition to the wall. Now, if they thrown in E-Verify, screw that. That's enough. That would have been enough. So I think what you need is you need E-Verify. You need a wall. You need some visa control. You need to change the asylum rules. And you need to wait and have all that be in place. Have the let the ACLU sue, have that be in place, and then you can have an amnesty like in a few years down the road. And you know that's that. Those are my maximalist demands. But uh, you could settle for something a little less generous than that. Yes, yes. But that that that's what I would want to see. Let me but ask the, you this the, the, question about asylum. Because the, I, I've been confused about this and trying to figure this out. Now, I understand asylum to mean you're persecuted politically, usually, by a regime that's hostile, a classic Soviet or Cuban or somebody who has escaped political tyranny, and we give them freedom uh, or religious. Now, that is no longer what asylum means, right, in, in, in immigration. Or, and when did that change and who changed it? Uh, uh, and what is it now? Human... Well, human rights lawyers managed to get the courts to change 
it to accommodate uh, women who were victims of a culture of machismo. Which is and the that was population of the, the entire world. Which is, which is about two-thirds of the population of the entire world, yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, and that was done without any act of Congress, just by convincing uh, the Justice Department to, uh, to alter its criteria and convincing courts to accept that. And, and Jeff Sessions changed that. Uh, who, in who, who, was that in, during the Obama years that this shifted? No, sessions. No, no. When 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 the asylum laws were expanded to include um, domestic violence, or I think the late Clinton years. Okay. Oh wow. Maybe maybe the Obama years, but I think it was the late Clinton years, and uh, yeah, and um, and and sessions managed to change it in the Trump years back to the original, and now Biden is changing it back to the culture of machismo again. that doesn't that they're also the other problem is gang violence in in Central America. It was also broadened i i there, but not as not as not as quite the success wasn't quite as concrete but uh there is there uh, there is a credible argument that people make it doesn't won't get thrown out of court in the biden years i don't think that well I'm worried about gang violence and that you know that Historically, as you say, that is not one of the criteria for asylum. It may be morally, you know, you could say, well, a father growing up seeing his sons are going to go into gangs would want to come to America, and we could understand why the father would want to come to America, but that is not normally the criteria for asylum. And my, my, I'm toying with the idea that let, let's just put aside asylum, let's get rid of the fraud. That, that these people are refugees and just say, okay, they're economic migrants. There's, it's completely honorable to be an economic migrant. Let's figure out how many of them we want to let in and, and let in some of them, but have a numerical limit. Maybe let in more Mexicans because Mexico has, has a special relationship with the United States. But treat people as economic migrants. Don't, don't go through the, all these these legal ruses of pretending that they're asylum seekers. But rhetorically speaking, if you say object to the first, you're obviously supporting violence against women. If you, uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the way in which any restrictions on immigration can be instantly translated into you're a cruel, racist bastard uh, are so effective. Um, and since we now are living under a regime at which the the, the fundamental sin, the greater than any other of the seven deadly sins, any of the traditional understanding, the fundamental sin is anything that might uh, affect a non-white person uh, to the to detriment. Then it seems to me that the logic of that argument is that is is that no one can really ever object to any reason because you're being an asshole. You're sitting here in America, privileged white. And you're saying this person can't come in. I, I mean, here I am, an immigrant, a white immigrant, for fuck's sake. Uh, uh, there aren't many of us anymore. But nonetheless, how dare I prevent I, someone with uh, of a different race from immigrating into the United States? It has to be that I'm a fucking racist. <laughs> I knew that talking to you would convince me that wokeism was the or sin at the bottom of all this. Well, I do. Th- uh, and- I do think a certain. I do think philosophically. If you, I mean, this is my problem with being a political trained in political theory. Once you know where this stuff comes from, once you know what it re- the premises really are, you realize it is utterly incompatible 
with the West, completely incompatible with a liberal democracy. And in the disguise of emotion or empathy or sympathy, all of which are completely noble things, it is bit by bit dismantling the very foundations of, of a liberal society. And that includes uh, a defense of the nation state as the least worst a unit for self-government. I'm, I'm just way behind you in terms of taking it seriously enough. Uh, and well, I'm told I every day I... I'm obsessed and I have to stop and all the rest of it. I just, I no, just see it everywhere. No, once, no. You, once you see where this is coming from, you can see. And once you realize that the entire elite from at least 2013, 14 onwards, take this to be the religion into which they have been inducted, you begin to see how powerful this movement is. Well, um, no, I, I think I, I think you're right. I mean, I think you don't think you could make a pitch to the American people say, "Look, machismo is terrible. The the whole world is behind us. Two thirds of the world has a horrible culture of machismo. We can't solve that overnight. We can't take everybody who's a victim of a culture of machismo because we'd have to take in all of India, for starters, and uh, and most of Asia." and you know half of russia and uh we we just don't have enough space for that uh it seems to me that uh, if we, you are going to be a, a victim of a political regime anywhere and that could be a hideously uh, a regime that hideously actively persecutes persecutes women so for example women in saudi arabia i think might have a a, a very good uh, case for asylum right um but people in other the semi-democracies or regular countries in which the government doesn't take this position, but the general culture is inimical to, let's say, gay people. Um, uh, the, the question is whether every such person should be granted asylum. Now, I, you know, I was on the board of immigration equality for a long time, which is the group that, that helped uh, gay people, people with HIV, uh, uh, from countries which are viciously homophobic, and whose lives were in danger in many cases, or who were split up from their spouses and incapable of going anywhere. We helped them, and, we have, and that group is still wonderful, um, still support it. Um, of course, it used to be mainly marriage cases, couple cases. Now it's mainly asylum cases. But I think if you're a gay person in Zimbabwe, say, uh, I, know, I know a dude who came over here uh, from Zimbabwe because he was gay and his father was going to kill him and everyone around was going to tear him <laughs> apart. I think that's, that seems to be a justified asylum case uh, because it relates to a government's policies, not entirely cultural. But again, if the United States has an obligation to admit any gay person anywhere in the world who feels oppressed, then, then again, there's a lot of people are going to come in. And, and in some ways, it feels, seems to me that the response should be to, to reach out into those cases, into those countries, and to attempt to bring what we have achieved to the rest of the world, um, which is happening, of course, slowly but surely. Right. I wonder if you, if, if you got away from it has to be the government, could you write a, de a new definition of asylum that just got the cases you talked about, people who, if they go back to Zimbabwe, they're going to be killed. Yeah, uh, I think you could. But not by the government, by their relatives. Or would that also let in a billion people? I don't know. I don't know. I, I uh, you know, it's, take take somewhere like Jamaica, where it, you, you basically, it, 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 you're murdered if you're a gay person. Um, 
the, the violence and hostility is a, a sort of bizarrely a kind of bizarre cultural product of Victorian occupation and some other weird shit. It's funny, Jamaica is very... I do think that a gay person that credibly believes they're going to be murdered pretty soon should be should have that case to come into the United States. Um, but when it comes, but 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 that's always going to be a limited number. Um, I don't know. It's 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 obviously a horrible. All as I, I wrote last week that all immigration is cruel. All immigration policy is at some level cruel because it's better here than there, and we're right. denying people the right to do that. Um, right. Uh, and in most, in individual cases, uh, it seems to be very justified to have that kind of broad asylum. But when it is really a euphemism for economic migration, uh, when it's nothing to do with the government, it's just to do with, with the culture, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult. The, um, it does seem to be, in terms of, you know, has wokeism taken over America? I do think the 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 welfare debate is a pretty good test of it. In other words, we have all these woke kids who've, you know, the Bruneggs and the and half of the right intellectuals, the Ross Douthats, behind this new guaranteed income. And we have the old fogies like me saying, no, we have a work ethic. You shouldn't get money without working. And we're against the dole. And we're for giving people a hand up, not a handout, et cetera, et cetera. And does that, that, old, that old argument used to work? As as recently as five years ago, it would clearly win in Congress. Uh, and will it win now, or will it lose? I mean, that's we're going to have that test within a year when they try to make this program permanent. And I wouldn't count out the old anti the old Reaganite anti dole sentiment. Well, the difference is that we've now been told we can spend literally infinite amounts of money on anything we want. And I think that has also changed. We used to have a view that maybe there are limits on what government can borrow and spend. And the, the deeper shift is, um, no, we don't. We can just print the money. We can borrow it indefinitely. A uh, trillion here, a trillion there. I think it's going to be like several trillion dollars that we've just put on the debt in the last few years. Uh, uh, and that obviously tilts towards generosity. Um, uh, that when we no longer live in a world where economics, as we've understood it, applies. <laughs> I mean, this is, I'd love to figure out exactly whether I believe this stuff because I'm instinctively skeptical of anybody that says everything you've ever thought about debt is no longer true. Um, uh, but that does tilt things in favor of just, oh, give the money. Give the money. I agree, although I wouldn't want to give the money even if it didn't uh you know right. create future inflation because i i mean we're now at the but point if where you're going to be accused of being a fucking awful white supremacist if you so much <laughs> as raise any kind or someone that wants to punish black women who hates black women you're you, you're obviously full of all this white supremacist ideas then yeah. then it's going to win that 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 i do think that the successful capital of the country means of, of the culture and of the elites primarily because most people don't agree with this uh, I think it's real, and I think it's going to have a huge impact. Keep keep in mind that the the current debate on this on this new welfare plan, I don't think is really that much about blacks or Latinos. We're talking about do we put the white deplorables on the dole too? Right, right, right. And that's the big shift. It's not going to create, you know, the insular underclass, which is reinforced by race prejudice, which is, you know. 
blacks are forced to live in certain parts of town. And when they go out to seek jobs, they're the last hired and the first fired. So the, the dole has a tendency to, to let, let them stay in place and not even not even go through the hassle of trying to get those jobs, which are difficult for them to get. Uh, whites don't face that prejudice, so they're not going to be confined into an area, and it's not going to be a sort of a whole neighborhood filled with unemployed men, but they're going to be sort of half that. It's going to be much broader geographically, and whole areas like Appalachia and uh, parts of Ohio are going to be uh, on the dole. White, white men not working you go up in a neighborhood and, and a lot of the men don't work and isn't does that have a slower corrosive effect on society i think it does uh but it's not a race thing it's a it's no a, as, it's as a we've seen thing. as we've seen that that certain patterns of, of family disintegration are now in, you can't tell the difference between large amounts right. of, of 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 white communities in 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 the rural heartland and some uh members of black communities in the inner city. It's the same human thing. Right. But, but uh, I think if you could frame it as we don't want to give these asshole racist white people anything, uh, <laughs> you might succeed. <laughs> uh, That's a good tactic. Yeah. <laughs> Let's. We need to stiff the deplorables. Screw them. Fuck those people. I mean, that's the general view anyway. Um, they're all intrinsically and irredeemably evil. Have you seen the movie Fish Tank? No, I recommend it. It's about it's about the white white people on the dole in Britain living oh. in a council house. Very good movie. A little too long, but it's a documentary well or done. an actual movie. No, it's a fictional movie. It's basically oh. flash dance set in <laughs> set in a council house in Britain. With, you've with got a, you've sold me a, already. <laughs> what you've sold me already. <laughs> okay, wait. this is also true um, in Britain, by the way. If you look at educational achievement, non-white minorities are kicking ass in Britain. Uh, and the by far the most struggling element in Britain are, are white working class men right, and boys. Right. And this we're, this we're is this is a right. this is also increasingly the workforce tilts in favor of the kind of jobs that women historically and basically do tend to focus on and has crippled those those jobs and, and sectors that men used to in which men used to find some sort of meaning for their lives and role in the right. society. Um, but those people are the ones who are being left behind at this point. Right. So I don't think, I think the attempt of, of the left to say it's all about race is factually inaccurate. They may get away with it. But in fact, this is also about putting many, many, many more white people on the dole uh, than there were before. And that's that's where the, that's the cutting edge of the of what's actually happening with this new bill. I just can't and, remember you know, the last time I heard a Democratic politician say anything like work is important, um, that that's, that's essential, that the, 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 the culture that comes from the responsibilities of work. I mean, we used to hear this in the 90s right. all the time from the Clinton people, and indeed even Obama, of course, who was a sort of transitional figure in all this. Right. I'm, and, um, and you wouldn't think Obama's, that Joe Biden would... Yeah, go on. You wouldn't think Joe Biden would be the guy to stop saying it. Well, I don't uh, know, and, Mickey. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I don't hear anything from him. I, he seems like a completely different figure. I mean, we don't hear much of him at all, but he feels like a hood ornament to me at this point. And maybe I'm wrong, or maybe he's just simply uh, decided that he agrees with all of this. Um, 
I I don't uh, I don't know. That's a, that's the great mystery of Biden. Actually, the one reason I would like to hear him have a press conference because you might be able to get an answer. Does he really believe this? Is he just saying you know? My guess is, and this is what the Biden biographers say is he has always been a moderate in the sense of he's just the sum total of the vectors yeah. impinging on him. He doesn't have any beliefs at all. He's just where the equilibrium of the Democratic Party takes him, and that's what he believes. And now the equilibrium has moved way to the left, as you say. So he's he doesn't talk about work anymore because that's where the forces that and that's what he believes. But that's all he is. I think that's he's pretty just... persuasive in terms of understanding <laughs> the evidence in front of us. Um, but he's, for example, he's adamant position that uh, on something like. Uh, Making, allow, insisting that trans kids can can go to whichever bathroom they want, can 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 play on any team they want. For example, this is it's not just it's clearly his conviction that he really believes that, and I, and I think he thinks it's it's immoral to raise any questions about that. Um, or uh, on immigration, I, I don't hear anything from him that suggests he might actually want to enforce the borders very effectively. Um, I hear nothing on the race stuff except absolute endorsement of every single aspect of critical race theory, um, including reimposing it on every government employee. Uh, and when asked to describe what they are, he says it's, it's sensitivity training, uh, being sent I, more sensitive to other people of other races. So he, the, the, he, he has this incredibly benign view of everything uh, to what one imagined was to his left. I keep waiting for old anti-busing Joe to put his foot down. And to say something Neanderthal-like uh, that gets the hackles of the left up, and it hasn't happened, has it? No, because well, uh, well, they don't let him speak very much in public. Um, I mean, he's he's shuffled on, and he makes certain statements that then he disappears from. He hasn't had a press conference. Right. Even the interviews are, of course, by. I mean, you don't expect George Stephanopoulos to give him a hard time. Uh, and the media, the mainstream media in general, is now essentially, and this is what's interesting, for being a monolith against Trump, it's now a monolith in defense of anything the Biden administration wants to do. Not and, quite. The, the border is getting a lot of coverage. Yes, but, uh, it, but it's, it's, yeah. And there are some, I mean, like Nick Miroff, for example, seems to me to be reporting very honestly and straightforwardly. A lot of it is not, though. A lot of it is, 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 is. Is it, it presents it as his terrible problem that only racists are, want to uh, uh, attack him on this front. Uh, maybe guess, I'm misreading this. Maybe, maybe. I guess I was I was so pessimistic that that I'm heartened by even half the half the coverage that we're getting, uh, and it so it it it, it, it it's I I still have some hope that the old Biden will surface, and it may be it may be that you know the old thought experiment if you replace hundred of his brain cells, is he the same person? If you place three million of his brain cells, he may not be the same person. The, the, what's between his ears may be completely different than what was between his ears 20 years ago. I, I don't know, but he's a bit of, I mean, I think one of the most staggering successes of the Biden campaign, and indeed so far the Biden presidency, is that he is really not that very prominent in any of it. And I think that may be smart. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't see the benefit of him going out there and selling, quote unquote, this economic no, package. It's... It seems to waste of time. And, and in some respects, he's better off just focusing on getting shit done. Um, 
I think he's I, agree ref- this. I think his refusal to take the bait on the culture war is very smart. But it's not like he isn't enforcing policies. I mean, he now has, for the first time ever, uh, a, a policy of mandating, quote-unquote, equity in every single field of government, of, of all of government policy is going to be dedicated towards making sure affirmative action works or the, the, the racial preferences are absolutely integral to the federal government. Um, and discriminating on the basis of race and gender is, is absolutely essential to, to racial and sexual justice. Mm. I mean, that's, about, more, about, that's much more than any previous Democrat has ever done on the question of, of race and on questions such as... Uh, you know, the due process questions in sexual abuse cases on campuses where he's, he's definitely in favor of uh, stringing up the men. With, I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but, but basically uh, re- drastically reducing due process for men accused in, of sexual abuse on and, campus. And it's, and it's made more mysterious by the fact that I don't think he, I think he is actually making the decisions. I don't think he's, you know, that's a very, uh, there's a, a meme or whatever it is on the right that that well he's not really in control somehow either Kamala Harris or or uh, or uh, you know Ron Klain or somebody is controlling him and he's just like a old man in a wheelchair and I don't think so I think he is making these decisions and the the big question is uh, why <laughs> well I I think uh, <laughs> I, I, it is a good question but I, I, Dr Dr Jill Biden um, uh, seems to be very very woke. Um, she's, she's, huh. she talks constantly about doing the work. Um, huh. uh, that's always a bad sign. It's a very bad sign. Um, <laughs> uh, I think she's full on, uh, woke and, uh, and has all the usual prejudices of the work too. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it, I think it's hard to be embedded in the democratic party at this point and not be affected by its shift its dramatic shift to the left. Um, I mean, guys like Ron Klain and Bruce Reed are not, they're not from that uh, milieu. Well, they right? haven't been. I don't know where they are now. Maybe I should ask them on. They won't come on, of course, but, but I, 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 maybe I should ask them. I'll ask Bruce. I mean, you these, these, these are Bruce. people, these, these are not people we're unfamiliar with. They're, 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 they're good people. Um, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't want to get Bruce in trouble by. Well, uh, clearly you do. Clearly you do. That's why you brought his name up. It's like no, I want you. Like, I want you. To, <laughs> I want you to get him in trouble. I don't, I don't want to get him in trouble myself. Uh, um, he can. He can admit to being friends with you. I don't think he. Uh, oh no, no, know. no! I am so toxic at this point. I can, no one can publicly yeah. uh, declare themselves friendly with me. Um, Mickey, this has been fantastic. Um, we've hashed it out. Um, I'm so grateful for you coming on. We've, we've, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's helpful to get a little bit perspective on all this, and uh, I definitely would urge people to listen to your podcast with Bob Wright. Um, that is truly terrific, um, very funny, and very informative. And both of you are among the smartest, most informed people, and you really do have disagreements. And the thing is that it's so hard increasingly to listen to people who genuinely disagree, who even have, as, you, as I said, a certain amount of contempt for one another, but who are also friendly and <laughs> capable of hashing things um, out. He's incredibly mean okay. to you. I like that about Katie and Jesse's podcast too, Blocked and Reported, the fact their own mutual contempt and Katie's constant 
denigration of her partner. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, and it, and, 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 and it's, it's very good fun. You said he's incredibly mean to me? No, uh, Katie is mean to Jesse, um, Jesse uh, Single. Uh, I that notorious oh, okay. and I, terrible I transphobe. If, I would be happy if Bob was mean to me, but he's, unfortunately, there are a lot meaner people out there that I would also like to have a dialogue with. Name some. Uh, who would you like to have a dialogue well, with? Well, the, the, the ultimate person who would not want to talk to me is Matt Brunig, hmm. however you pronounce it. Uh, but, uh, and I would like to, I would like to have a dialogue with Ezra Klein after trying to destroy his career when he was a young whippersnapper. Did you, how did you uh, try and destroy Ezra Klein's career? Don't you remember he he accidentally he tweeted out something about Tim Russert, who was the, the Tim Russert was the 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 big guy in the conventional yeah. DC media, and 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 Ezra apparently didn't know the tweets were public, and after a debate, he wrote. Fuck him, fuck him with an acid spiky tip dick. <laughs> okay. And did he and really fuck him with he that really doesn't sound like Ezra? Thought, that sounds far too I thought, fun. <laughs> I thought this here's the most ambitious, you know, pole climbing guy, and he's completely screwed himself by like insulting the guy at the top of the ladder. And I should have realized that no, I should have realized two things. No, Ezra Klein was unstoppable. Of course he is. And B, uh, obviously he obviously did his excuse was he didn't know it was public and obviously that's true because he never would have written that if he thought it was i i would love more of that ezra i really would (laughs) (laughs) i have to say i've never discovered it privately or publicly i I, i'm really Uh, delighted that such a figure might have once existed um uh but yes unstoppable it may be be only him and like four or five other people but apparently it did exist He's he's done something extraordinary. He has gotten hired as a white male at the New York Times for quite a quite a serious position. That's that takes a huge amount of talent and leverage. Uh, with with an assistant and podcasts and everything. Yeah, it was. He's even heterosexual, which is kind of staggering. Um, but anyway, good for him. Uh, he's a force in general, I think, for good. Um, Mickey, we'll say goodbye. We'll see you all next week. Lots of rather exciting guests coming up. I won't tell you who, but uh, it's it's looking good out there. And the Discast is doing really well in terms of our downloads and listeners. So thank you so much for everybody supporting this. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Mickey. Thanks, Andrew. You bet.